0: If we need each other, then I'm led to believe that me lending a hand, doing my part, that that's gonna change my being just as it's gonna potentially enable someone else to, ch- to change their being. And the sense, right? We talked about community and trust earlier. The result is a sense that the more I lean into interdependence, the more I recognize that um, I haven't gained one thing on the spiritual path without someone else, right? Even having access to a teaching, it's because someone said it, someone wrote it down, someone put it in a book, someone donated it to a library, whatever, right? And and I'm gonna need more help down the line. That's just a fact. I know that there's gonna be times well, in you. my life when I'm gonna need <laughs> immense amount of help from other people. And so there's also this sense of, of trust too. Like, yeah, that feels really scary. Can I trust that? community is gonna hold me up when I need it. And uh, that just feels also like a more real and vulnerable and humble way to be in the world and also to serve from.
1: This is the beware how, Show, a spiritual podcast covering mindfulness, creativity, and the perennial philosophy. I'm Bob Peck, speaking with Scott Stanley, Ryan Paget, Alina Kiriaki, and Maggie Burke. We're conscious creatives and formerly closeted mystics trying to unpack the inaccessible. Here at Beware How, we interview artists, activists, and teachers in the attempt to bring the spiritual wisdom of the mountaintop to the here and now. According to the mystics, the truth cannot be spoken. But we'll try to talk about it anyway. Hey y'all, I'm Bob Peck, and this is the Beware How Show. We're a light-hearted spiritual podcast, and we're deeply grateful to talk with artists, activists, and teachers, generally fascinating people whose stories inspire us and our listeners. A big part of this show is untangling misconceptions about spirituality, which I imagine we'll do quite a bit of this evening. It is Monday, August 2nd, and our guest is Sita Ram Das. Thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me here. I'm really excited (laughs) to be with
1: you all. Absolutely. Likewise, Um, I'm going to read your bio, and we will jump right in. This is from Sitaram's first-person perspective here. I spent several years serving my beloved teacher Ram Dass on Maui. It was during this time that I committed myself to the practice of kirtan and the path of bhakti yoga, the yoga of service and devotion to God. I also received a rare chance to be in close proximity to a man who truly lives from the heart. Whether he was lecturing on stage, at the dinner table with friends, or alone in his room, Ram Dass rested in and acted from a place of love. I believe that this is the most important thing anyone can learn, to live from the heart, to act from the heart, to sing from the heart. This is Ram Das's main teaching, and it continues the teachings of his guru, the great saint, Neem Karoli Baba, who said, love everyone, serve everyone, and remember God. I've also received my graduate degree in social work and now find myself singing, teaching, counseling, writing, serving in a wide variety of settings, ranging from yoga studios, music festivals, retreat centers to homeless shelters, mental health centers, hospice clinics, and prisons. You also just put out a really fantastic book, um, a collection of prose and poetry called For and From God, um, which is my current obsession right now. Um, But before we get into Ram Das and your book and the work that you do with Kripa, um, just tell us a bit about how it began for you. Um, I know you said you were kind of a grassroots activist, counselor, general hippie that made your way
0: to Maui. Yeah. How did it all start? Uh, It's such an interesting question, right? Because when we're putting narratives to our lives, it's like, what, what moment are we picking as the starting point, you know, for whatever particular story we're telling? Um, Sometimes I think that it could have all started when I was just a really little kid, you know, asking my dad questions about like infinity and not being able to get answers from him, you know, and having to just wrestle with the fact that there was questions that didn't have tangible answers to them. Sometimes I think that maybe it all started when I fell in love with the movie Star Wars and in high school learned that it was actually based on the work of this person, Joseph Campbell, and you know. But oftentimes, when I tell the story of how it all started, it was in my late teens, and I was both really hungry for answers and questioning everything and devouring philosophy texts and all sorts of great literature. And and I also had a lot of pain and addiction issues that I was working through and just generally wasn't very satisfied with life. And it was around that time I was experimenting with psychedelics and had a few openings into something that I didn't have words for but i also didn't necessarily know was real either before having those openings and it gave me a little bit of an intuition that that maybe there was something more than my mind could conceive of and maybe there was more to life than just chasing pleasure and pushing away pain Um, and so that's often feels like the starting point of how things all started for me and then through that finding my way to various spiritual texts and practice, practices and starting to become drawn to Ramdas as my primary teacher more and more, just through the fact that I found that his books resonated more than a lot of other ones. And from there, I got to find my way to spend time with him and to serve him full time as a caregiver. And that's really when I got to just get situated in the teachings and the practices so that it became more of a foundation rather than something that I was doing. Um, yeah.
1: That's lovely. Um, most of our mystic guests have an issue with that question. Not an issue, you know what I mean? But it's uh, <laughs> people are like, my background, what does that even mean? Who am yeah, I? Where do you, know? you start? <laughs> What's it's my identity?
2: Deciding where to start is a big choice, right? <laughs> and it may be the biggest choice in any story, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, even, you know, in terms of that that book that I recently put out, it's a collection of writings, but also it was, they were being curated to kind of tell a certain story. And all of those writings, you know, have to do with my relationship with Ram Dass in some way, either in terms of the time when I was meeting him or spending time there, or the time when I left and was really grappling with those teachings in my life. And, um, so that, that's also something that's just very present in my consciousness is just this idea that we're always telling a story about ourselves in some way, form, other, whether it's conscious or unconscious. And so thinking about the way we're telling that story, what the starting point is, you know, how we're describing the protagonist of it. And and what's really interesting for myself as I look back on various times of my life, although the facts and that time period hasn't changed. The way that I tell the story about these various times in my life, it definitely changes. And I find that really fascinating. Based on new plateaus
1: that you've obtained in some way, you know, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, perspective shifts. And um, in terms of my you know, counseling background, it's, it's also really interesting. Cognitive behavioral therapy. there's exercises you'll do where let's say we have really rigid fixed views like we tend to be really paranoid right and so we receive information and we tend to put it into this paranoid worldview and so there's exercises where basically you'll ask someone okay with all the facts you just presented I want you to provide me several different other ways you can tell the same story or draw meaning from it and they can be ridiculous it can involve superheroes it can Whatever, but the idea is to kind of create some elasticity in our minds so that these same facts aren't always drawing us towards these same conclusions and these same worldviews and these same narratives. And I think, you know, especially right now with how polarized things are, I think this is something that we can all use a little bit more of. I think you're absolutely right.
1: The dynamic nature of Maya, um, if I may. Um, See, Ram, I'm I'm so touched by the community around Ram Das and just everybody who um, really supported him in his, you know, last couple of decades. There, we we've been really lucky. I think I mentioned this to you, but we we uh, interviewed Jeremy Hoffeld, who we're all obsessed with. Um, you know, it's I think his episode is called "Injecting Darshan into Feeds." Uh, which is basically what he does. You open up Instagram and there's Sri Ramana instead of someone eating eggs and, and um, um, <laughs> or whatever. And um, he's great. And just, you know, all of you guys really, I mean, we'll, we'll have to get into the, the Kirtan groups and um, all of those retreats and um, workshops and Dasima, you know, we've all watched kind of the content that Jeremy's put out um, about that and um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe just tell us some, because I, I I have like a couple of sticky notes on for and from God. I'd love to read, or if you if you would like to read them. Um, but before we jump into that, I'd love to hear more about um, the Maui days and just some of the some of the stories from from that community of really just to me really sincere seekers that that uh, came to support him.
0: Absolutely. Well, I like that you pointed out the community around Ramdas because it is a really beautiful group of people and I would say my interactions with them and my time there at the house, that deepened the teachings for me just as much as my time with Ramdas really. Um, one of the things that I have been really struck by in my thinking actually is we're talking about this idea of, our perspective shifting and the way we see things changing over time. You know, Ramdas is an incredible being. I mean, you know, with all this pain in his body and his ability to really rest in loving awareness is incredible, and it's definitely a testament to the amount of practice he did in his life. Um, but. It, one of the things that over time I've been getting a more expanded awareness around is the fact that it's also a testament to how much love was there around him. You know, that what enabled him to keep doing that work and to focus so single-pointedly on really grappling with the pain in his body in that way and, as he calls it, his own dark thoughts and to really rest in that presence of grace within the heart um, is he had a whole community of people there to ensure that his basic needs were met. And and even his ability to die the way that he did, where he got to have the death that he wanted, you know, um, that that was made possible by a community of people that loved him and that were willing to put the conditions in place so that that could happen. And so it's really deepened for me this sense that yes, we all have our own work to do, right? We have our own responsibility to engage in the practices that matter to us and to live in alignment with our values and to deepen into our own consciousness. But we don't do it alone. In fact, we can't, right? We, we are interdependent on each other. And when we realize that, um, it does, I think, awaken a deeper sense of humility and also dharma. You know, I, I really want everyone to be able to have the chance to die the death that Ram Dass died. You know, I, and that's within all of us. But we all know that it's harder when when we're when we're struggling so much to even get enough to eat. Um, it's hard to even spend the time to even read the kind of text that might open ourselves up to new ideas, right? So, I I love the fact that you start you started with that question um, because it is a really open hearted and loving community. And the other thing that I was really struck by in my time there was at some point the honeymoon phase kind of started to wear off and I started to see other people's stuff you know and I just started to figure out I'm like oh like this actually isn't any different than my own family you know <laughs> like my own family that I was like born and raised in and that I moved away from Washington to like be here on this island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. like you, You're all the exact same as them. You, you This might be different hangups, but... Everybody's you know, got stuff. <laughs> yeah, all this stuff is still here. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, though, is that because it was in this context of a community where people were sincerely trying to do their work, it allowed this sense of trust where I would see this where if disagreements happen between two people, let's say with myself and someone else, and I'm and they're and, you know, we're so frustrated and we think that we're right. And there's this, it was easier to have that part of the mind that could start to see it as just, as you called it, Maya playing out, right? I could trust that for all their hangups, they're doing their work and they could trust that I was doing my work. And so, It made it easier for that other force to come through, you know, that presence of loving awareness where we could hold that dance between each other in a slightly different way. And that was really profound for me. It it showed the importance of, I think, why universally in all religious and spiritual traditions, spiritual community is one of the foundations. In fact, it's said to be in a lot of of traditions, even... Yeah, it's in Buddhism, right? It's considered to be even more important than, than practice itself. Um, so you can, you can see that and that the truth is, is when we've gotten that gift where it's a little bit easier, we see that um, the same work lies everywhere, that I can still bring that same presence with old friends, with family, with coworkers, with people cutting me off as I'm driving. Right, that there doesn't have to be any separation with that. We all have our stuff. We're all doing the best we can. And here we are. So that you know, in terms of the community, I can say that and I, I also kinda heard in that there was a couple of questions, you know, just maybe about what it's like to be around Ramdas. Just give us the stories. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> We're not just we don't just want you for that, but that is a part of, you know, tell the goods.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I will start by saying that the most profound thing I gained from there was really just the day-to-day of being in his presence. You know, it's, there's not like, I have some good stories and I will tell them, but um, even more than that, there's just, when you're around someone that is really relating to their own body and their own identity in a different way, uh, it's, it is. It's really quite profound, um, and there is a certain playfulness that came about. That when, especially when I came to Maui, I didn't necessarily have that on my spiritual path. It was very serious. Um, so here's a story. I. It was. I'm not a big sports fan, necessarily. I mean, I, I like playing sports. I did when I was young, but I'm not like a big. I don't really watch sports. I'm kind of like a fair-weather fan. You know, I might watch a championship game of some sport. But at some point I had some idea that that you know, spiritual people don't do that, you know. And I'm also on Maui, it's, it's a very kind of new age community and there's a lot of artists and you know, it's not necessarily what what you would think of as a like a football loving community for instance. So here I am with all these ideas. I I and I'm so not plugged in anything. I have no idea that the Super Bowl's about to happen. And uh Jack Cornfield and <laughs> an other Buddhist teacher were on island and so they came to visit Ramdas, their old friends, and happened to be at the Super Bowl. And so they are like, we want to watch the Super Bowl. And so Ramdas is like, all right, we're gonna watch the Super Bowl. And this was the the kicker on it was they brought and i you know the, like this kind of lighthearted playfulness they brought a pack of paps blue ribbon beer over the house you know because it's the super bowl and like that's what you do and you know i mean i know that ramdas didn't drink and i'm sure even if jack cornfield enjoyed a glass of wine i'm sure he doesn't drink paps blue ribbon <laughs> i'm sure that's not like a habit but but you know it's the super, super bowl, bowl and they're they're going to do it and i just that moment really it just cracked a lot for me about what the spiritual path is really about. And, you know, it, we're really talking about a, a freedom in our, our being. And it's the kind of freedom that can allow ourselves to, to do something like that every once in a while because it's fun, you know? And they they had so much fun together, like these friends that had known each other for like 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one little story. I love story. That. Yeah, I, I that's the main thing I think that
1: I've learned from him, um, you know, and from afar, from a distance. But, you know, in some ways, intimately to me, um, you know, I I got into a uh, religious documentary. That was my like my 20s. I was making very serious religious films. And um, before that, I was a child comedian. I was telling some friends about this the other night. Um, I did stand up like when I was in middle school and did jokes about like. <laughs> video games like legend of zelda jokes oh yeah i saw them when scott was there like like (laughs) when you go into the dungeon and you open up the treasure chest and there's a stick like like can i get something better than this you know like those kind of jokes (laughs) to 13 year olds and like killed
2: you started early
1: yeah i killed as a child comedian and then um i went to college and uh i didn't I didn't go into comedy anymore it just wasn't I, I met funnier guys than me um you know and it was just was. I was reading spiritual texts and getting really into it and so I was like no I'm gonna be make spiritual films and it's gonna be like super serious and the films got in Ryan and I worked on it's called The Kingdom Within it's about yoga and Christianity played at film festivals it was on Gaia you know it wasn't a huge thing but it it uh got out there a little bit and um it's very serious. It's, it's, you know, hardly lighthearted. And, um, it, you know, it wasn't until, I don't know, five or six years ago or something really starting to just eat and breathe and live in um, Ram Das Mostly his lectures from the 80s. I, those are the ones that really touched me when he would talk about, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s, he's, he's very serious Indian philosopher and um kind of late 70s 80s 90s he's kind of satirizing himself and saw through the layers of himself as you well know and I was just like oh my god like it, it was like it was co- stand-up comedy like he's doing comedy but he's ta- quoting Lao Tzu and quoting uh Rumi and um it was such a you know really uh, touched my heart to to show that that you know you don't have to take everything so seriously in the spiritual path it's it's actually oppositional to it if you're really plugged in to your inner being um you know a lot of that stuff really melts away and um so i'm, I'm glad that
0: you tell a story about uh, <laughs> your own stereotypes you know well it, it that sense of humor of ramdas it that definitely never went away i mean he <laughs> was so funny mm-hmm. and even with the stroke and words wouldn't come so much he still found a way to to work it you know with what he had and here's here's another little story so one of my job i mean there so dasima was the main caregiver at that time and especially when i was there she was still able to do a lot of the physical caregiving over the years ramdas's needs became more and more intense and dasima got older herself and so, there was more help needed, and they would have more younger people there. Uh, but at that point, it was just me and Dasima and Ramdas living at the house. And one of the main jobs that they wanted me there for, besides all the other little help I was giving, was essentially just in case anything happened that I could pick them up. And so there was one night where Dasima woke me up and I was like a bear. It's awful waking me up. It takes me like 10 minutes, 20 minutes for my brain to like activate. And I'm just like, oh, what's going on? That seems like Ramdas fell out of bed. You have to come upstairs. And, you know, she's really panicked. I was like, oh, what? What? You know, and I'm like annoyed because I just woke up, but she just said this thing. So I know I shouldn't be. I'm like, okay, okay. So I get dressed, I go upstairs. And yeah, Ramdas was laying on the floor and he had fallen out of bed. And that's obviously really scary and it's, it's dangerous. You know, he could have broke something and all of those things. I mean, him going back to the hospital could mean an infection arises. I mean, all of these things, even though he was relatively healthy, given his situation, death was always a possibility right around the corner, right? So this is a serious moment. So I go down, I, I managed to lift him up off the ground and get him back into bed. And so there's this moment and Dasima and I were just standing there and we're kind of just staring at him, you know, like just what just happened and like, do we go, you know, just, is he okay? And so we're just standing there in silence, staring at him and a couple seconds goes by and Ram just says, well, that's all folks. (laughs) (laughs) it was just this perfect diffusion of the situation and you know we all got to laugh and go downstairs but even his ability to crack a joke in a moment like that you know it was like so simple and sweet but it does it, it touches upon mm-hmm. his humor and also just his character yeah absolutely love it
2: Back, I had a the back to the community note of it. I one of the lines that jumped out to me in the Netflix documentary was something he said about that. Um, in our culture, um, dependency is a no no, um, kind of. And I was curious, like how, you know, the community kind of worked to undo that culture or try to replace it with something new, and how you did that, and with him, and how he tried to.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> Well, it's interesting because there's two sides of that, right? There, there's my own work with it. And then there's the work that Ram Dass is doing himself. And on my own side of it, Ram Dass was my teacher. You know, I mean, I really revered him. And so it was never possible for me to view the act of me caregiving him as any type of less than situation. So my work from that and my lesson in that is really just that that's, you know, that involved obviously in some sense, my unique relationship with him, maybe my own projections, right? Whatever. But, but that inner state of of being able to serve someone joyfully and to do it as an act of true service where there's no power over relationship, that's an innate quality of our own human heart, right? That exists within me. Otherwise that wouldn't have been possible. And so since then, as I'm doing service work in the world in general, and you know, I've worked in hospice centers and uh, homeless centers, and uh, worked as a grief counselor and mental health therapist, and um, that's really what I'm always trying to come back to, is that we need each other, and service is a part of that dance, and that it is a true honor to be able to be there for someone. Um, And that for my own self, the truth is, is that I can't do this alone either. I also need other people. And that's where it also connects to the work that I saw Ramdas do. Part of the reason that he was so in touch with those teachings is because he saw them in himself. Dependency was not easy for him. And and it wasn't just a one-off, it wasn't a light switch, right? Because what happens is the body slowly over time needs more and more and more help. There's more dependency, right? So as Ramdas's body got weaker in various ways and he needed help that he was once able to do, even though he had already accepted help and had already worked through it in this, it was a new terrain. It was a new area I mean, that he had to work through. And I saw him work through it. Um, and it was, that was the part of him that was very human and and really tackled it with nobility. I mean, he, it was a struggle and it wasn't, an, he actively struggled with it. And, and I got to see that continued relationship with it change over time as he continued to surrender more and more. Whereas towards the end, you know, he could hardly do anything and he was, he just really got to rest in that spaciousness of awareness. Um, and don't you think, Sita Raman, I mean, everybody else
1: feel free to jump in here I, uh, the um, the Eastern contemplative practices of the witness of detaching from the identity I mean that's that is a invaluable tool in the process of aging I mean I feel like I'm already you know I'm obviously still young and healthy but I'm 33. And I get fatigued and, you know, there's still bandwidth energy uh, here and there that's popping up. It's like the ripening and rotting of the body over time. And, um, you know, in the Western world, we just we think we're starting to decay our who the self is and the eastern vantage point is that um, you're eternal. You're beyond this this meager you know transitory identity and and i must must that have been a massive uh, aid to him in his exceptionally painful uh you know departure
0: absolutely yeah i think so and he really to put in here's another little story they can kind of put into perspective just where he was at in his consciousness. Um, This one day, his sense of time wasn't that great. It was one of the things that the stroke impacted. And this happened every once in a while, not all that often. I mean, you know, he could look at a clock and see what time it was, but sometimes he would get confused and he would come downstairs early for dinner or something. And on this one particular day, he came down and it was an hour early. And we were planning to sit out on the back patio to eat. And so he was down there and I saw the time. I was like, well, I don't know if he knows, you know, so I went back down and I told him, I said, Hey Ramdas, you know, dinner's not for another hour. And he said, Oh really? And I was like, yeah, I could tell he was a little bit surprised. He says, okay, well, I guess I'll just sit here. And so I went back upstairs and I was talking with the person that was was helping make dinner basically and I could see out the window him down there on on the patio and I was looking out periodically and he was literally wasn't doing anything he wasn't looking at his phone you know he wasn't reading the paper he wasn't and he wasn't necessarily meditating either in the way that maybe I would meditate where it's a real practice and I'm sitting down and there's probably some sense of struggle Uh, you know, to stay present. He was really just there and looking out at the ocean and appreciating the beauty and just totally present. And the thing is, is that that's what he was doing upstairs before he came down. You know, so that's... It's both a practice for him and it was a state of awareness that he had earned through that practice, you know, to just really be in that witnessing consciousness. So... Yeah, absolutely. And I think the reality is for most of us, especially those of us that are younger, look, we are in the world. and we do have these minds and these intellects and these bodies, and um, we have our duties to our family and to each other and our communities and to democracy and right? We all have our we have things to do in the world. And so um, for us, the practice is a little bit different. Right, we're we're cultivating that witness through the act of of action itself. Um, but but in some sense, it's no different, you know. And us practicing now in the midst of all this, um, that's what's going to make it easier when we can't do as much. And a lot of the stuff that we have to work with are at deeper and, and subtler levels because we're face to face with our own mortality, the the terror of death, you know. I do a lot of grief counseling, and one of the things that I think gets lost when we even think about this idea of the self being eternal is the fact that who we think we are is actually all we know. So everything that we think we know about ourselves is is going to die, and that is literally and absolutely terrifying. You know, our body mind system it's it's a really deep part of what it means to be alive. That fear of death, Um, and so just realizing that that is something that that we too need to be present with and watch with that witnessing consciousness you know the this is a really rich journey that we're on Um, and there's a lot of layers but regardless of where we're at and whatever stage of life we're in that developing that witnessing consciousness deepening that capacity for compassion and loving awareness as far as i can tell at this stage it's It might be applied differently in different situations, but it is universally applicable. Well said.
1: I can keep (laughs) (laughs) blabbing. I have so much to say, uh, but I'd rather
3: let you guys talk. No, totally. I'll I'll jump in. Um, First of all, um, yeah, just really grateful to be uh chatting with you and hearing some of your stories and I just really love everything that you've um, shared so far um especially you know things about your process too so thank you um one thing that really stood out to me is this idea of community um that's something that I too in the last couple of years um has you know come into my uh awareness and has totally changed my life I have a small spiritual community, um, a group of people that are actually living together um, in, in, a, in a shared property. And um, I've had the opportunity to um, become really close with the work that they're doing. And um, the um, the impact of having people around you um, all the time, often, uh, is so powerful, so, so powerful. And um, I, I think it's really easy in our contemporary kind of lives, um, where we might have just ourselves or a partner and we have a spiritual practice, but you're insulated in a way, uh, a little bit, and hopefully your partner is supportive of your practice as you are theirs. And, uh, you can grow in that way, but when you're surrounded by multiple people, it just changes. It's just things become much more apparent, um, much quicker and things come out much quicker and things need to be worked through. Um, and it's just such a blessing. And um, so I was just really resonating with what you were sharing about, you know, the, the love that Ram Das was cultivating was, you know, probably largely influenced by the love that was around him um, and that community that was around him. And I can say the exact same for my work in the last two years my sense of love within myself has grown exponentially um, directly connected to the um, the group of people that I've surrounded myself with and how closely I've surrounded myself with them and, and all of us being very dedicated and, um, and holding each other accountable and showing us, you know, each other, our blind spots and holding, helping each other through that process. It's really, really beautiful. And um, I just was really resonating with that. So wanted to plus one on, onto that, uh, I, that sense of community, I think is really important. It's your sangha, You know,
1: well, 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 I'll, uh, transition to appreciation for this group. Um, you know, we had another mystic, uh, content creator, uh, named Zevi Slavin, Reb- Rabbi Zevi in Jerusalem, uh, his channel seekers of unity. He's terrific. And, um, he goes, uh, you know, at some point he goes, man, I, I love, that it's you guys on the, you know, together, (laughs) you know, it's, it's kind of tough doing it uh, by yourself, you know? And I was like, you know, absolutely. I I, I depend on these people. Uh, Maggie Burke has just joined us. So we're, we're, we're five kind of rotating in and out. And, um, you know, when I'm going to publish something on medium or something, these guys get it and Hey, is this any good? Is this, you know, where, what, what can I, clean up you know what part of the podcast was useful like uh the the creative collaboration um from a real soulful uh level is is uh, extremely valuable for me and so sh- reciprocating that gratitude to you guys yeah. Yeah, it's
2: been my life focus. Creative collaboration is all I seem to want to spend, you know, my time on. <laughs> time doing. <So laughs> exactly. Years and years. <clears throat> yeah, and that's. I think that's Can't a really
1: enough. nice segue into into the work with Kripa Sutaram. Tell us about the Kirtan work and uh, and really all of you former caretakers, as we were seeing on the site. It's it's Evan and, uh,
0: and t- tell us more. Yeah. So. I am a part of a Kirtin group. There's four of us. And we all were leading Kirtin on our own in different ways and involved in different service projects in different ways. And we just decided how cool it would be for us just to do it together. And uh, it's interesting because I I had to rework a lot of things through that process, you know, talking about. Uh, just the joy and the gift of collaboration right there's often for myself I mean one even just I was very used to putting on my own keratin events and the whole two hours are mine and you know I'm inviting other musicians there but I'm still the one leading the chance and you know I'm I'm just used to kind of creating it in a certain way and uh, so it meant Essentially, I'm I'm when I'm with them, I'm leading chance like twenty five percent of the time, and sometimes getting mad if I feel like their time management isn't as good as mine. You know, I'm like getting squeezed out because I was last. And uh, but uh, the bliss just just (laughs) tempers a little bit. But also, even the this idea of collaboration, right? I'm such a perfectionist that. For me, collaborating, I'm just so used to working on something for a really long time to the point where I'm fine-tuning individual parts and going back and forth for weeks until I'm like, okay, I'm now considering this a draft and I'm going to show it to someone to see what they think, Mm. right? And realizing that, I mean, there's a time and place for that. But uh, actually, if I'm willing to be vulnerable and to show like very messy and unfinished projects to people earlier on in the process that um, that can actually invite all sorts of different creative potential that wouldn't have been possible otherwise it can speed things up and so that's also been really a a powerful learning thing for me in this artistic collaboration with them in terms of just being willing to be very vulnerable in the creative process you know because when when you're giving your soul to something like that, and you really believe in it, it feels very vulnerable. I mean, it's, it feels like you're kind of showing your, your naked self to someone. Um, and so that, that has definitely been a part of my leaning edge in collaboration is being willing to, to show imperfect things with people to start collaborating earlier on. Um, but I'm smiling yeah, so...
1: because these are three perfectionists <laughs> and I'm the messy one. <laughs> We're all learning.
2: One million, <laughs> one million rounds of editing is my general preference and, uh, but i'm trying I'm working on it i'm trying uh-huh. to be better about it
1: <laughs> yeah well there's some point where it there's a there's actually a over over intellectualization aspect right? Oh, you big lose time the you lose the juice when you big time yes. you want it to get <laughs> it to a certain point but then you can work it too much
0: and right and we we all here know we get to this point especially if it's just us where it's like okay you finally realize that you just need to put it down for a while cuz you don't have that outside perspective and and for me sometimes it's allowing myself just to forget about it and come back months later right but in the act of collaboration you know some of those things it it doesn't have to be so extreme anymore you know cuz mm. you you get those other mirrors in the process but but for that to work and this is where community itself is a very vulnerable thing for that to work there has to be some sense of trust you have to trust that someone else is going to be really kind and gentle with this imperfect self that you've shown to someone and um you know i mean that's one of the things i've learned on my spiritual path especially as i've really grappled with the spiritual teaching of satya or truth right being truthful Mm. and honest is also recognizing that i don't have to show my whole self to everyone you know that that's there's all i'm i'm allowed to take care of myself and if there's certain people that it's just not worth my time or energy to show those parts of myself that i i don't have to do that right that there's can be an act of self-kindness in that so also to i mean that's a real gift when when we can have a community of people where that sense of trust is there where where we know Mm -hmm. that people people are going to treat what we show them of ourselves whether it's creative or, or otherwise right as we show them our stuff there's going to be some sense of of kindness shown that's that's a huge powerful gift Um, yeah so yeah so kripa we're a kirtan group it's con response call and response sanskrit chanting and we are very focused for us our core logic model is sacred community which is rooted in interdependence and it means that We don't feel like you can anymore in this day and age, especially we never could, but especially now it's becoming increasingly apparent that we can't separate the the systemic, the communal, the relational, the personal, the political, or the sacred, right? That this is all woven together in our daily lives. And so bringing our full selves to all of it and not Mm -hmm. trying to separate it is a healthier way to live. And so uh, with that, we've we really want to work to ensure that the teachings and the practices of bhakti yoga specifically but in general devotional and contemplative practices are available to anyone that the barriers of access uh, can be lowered and that language is really specific for us because um, we don't feel like we're providing access We're, we're essentially undoing something that has been created right if not all of us have access to something it's because collectively as a society we've set things up in a way so that it makes it more difficult for certain people to receive uh, various benefits than others so what that means in a practical sense is that we really strive to provide donation-based free low-cost sliding scale you know retreats workshops media Um, that's one way that we work to lower the barriers of access and another way you know a very tangible way is doing outreach to people, incarcerated individuals in the prison system, right? Literally a group of people that is a society we have separated physically, you know, often in very rural and remote areas where we can kind of pretend that the people don't exist there. So we've been doing that outreach, which before COVID meant going into prisons and singing kirtan with people. That is obviously on hold for a lot of reasons. <laughs> but we've still been engaging through letter writing, providing resources. And, you know, as of a few weeks ago, I was really convinced that in the spring of 2022, we'd be able to do another prison Kirtan tour right now with the Delta variant. I'm back to just not knowing again, but eventually, you know, we will be able to go back in again and uh, to provide chanting with people. and. To form community in that aspect, and so that's the short of it is the the work that we're doing together, and it's it it really did grow out of our desire. Our friendship with each other is one of the ways that we keep our love of Ramdas alive in our hearts, and his presence alive, and and the teachings alive for us. So yeah,
1: so beautiful,
0: sincere
1: honoring of that work, and um, you know I. Ramdas himself was such a tireless advocate. Um, you know, if, if our listeners aren't familiar, not only was he the author of Be Here Now and a brilliant philosopher in his own right, that's that's all he did was help people. He fed people, he did what Maharaji said. He went to uh, Nepal and they cured blindness with the Seva Foundation and, um, and the Prison Ashram Project, to my Understanding, he was if not a co-founding member, but a really early, um, you know, part of that. And I know him and uh, Bo Lozoff that wrote Inside Out, which I cherish, which is like this little prison manual for um, how to kind of learn yoga practices and get exposed to teachings from Gandhi and um, you know everyone interesting, basically. Um, so you know, in a very real way, um, you guys are carrying on that tradition. So. Um, Hearty, sincere honoring of that. Um, Melina and I actually um got officially approved, or I did, I think you were about to submit it and then COVID happened, but we got officially approved by the Texas Department of Justice or whatever to go in to teach meditation to prisons in uh, the area and uh and then COVID happened. So similarly sidelined for now but um I, my my seva has been um and ryan too has been a lot of food food bank work over the years and um ramdas's lectures have really inspired me to do prison work so i kind of can't wait to get in there as well i know that it must be so transformative my uncle was in uh prison for many years and um you know it's a it's a special seva in my heart so um really really appreciate the work you guys are doing any any uh you know interesting stories or um you know about the impact that you guys have made with with uh our incarcerated brothers and sisters
0: well i mean i know that we've made an impact but what's even more obvious to me is the impact that this kind of work has had on me sure which is that you know, I think for a long time, both in spiritual communities and even in therapeutic communities, we had this idea that worrying about the plight of the world was some projection in some sense, right? That essentially it was some way to escape ourselves. And um, and it's not that there's not some truth to that or that that can be true in some ways. I mean, sometimes we do get really fixated on external events because we can't deal with this pain inside of us. But I think we've also come full circle, and I've really seen this in myself that because I don't think, essentially, I don't think that my own thinking is even my own, right? There's so many influences on the way that I think, and a lot of them are unconscious. And when we think about dominant culture and its influence on all of us, what that means is that our collective blind spots I find that mirrored in my own being. And so by focusing on these areas where um, I know I have blind spots, that the prison system, as I brought up, is a really powerful one because, you know, it's physically we are removing people so that we can pretend that they don't exist. Um, And then all of the intersecting forces of classism and racism that intersect with that, right? I mean, these are all really big collective blind spots those exist in my own being and so by me taking the time to look at these collective issues and to make it personal in some sense I get to shine a light on these other parts of my being so essentially I'm trying to take the teaching love everyone literal right we do well, not love everyone as a culture we, we don't we, we don't treat everyone as if we love them and I'm a part of that. I'm not separate from the system in any way. There's no, I I can't pretend that that's the case, even though in my day to day, I do pretend, I mean, we all have our coping strategies that we use to pretend that we're not a part of this or to pretend that we're happy with the way things are. We all feel that deep pain that comes from being connected to each other and to know that we're not living in, in harmony with their deepest values. So for me, that that's, this element of sacred community and seeing that i can't separate these elements anymore and that they're all connected and so yeah by me taking putting boots on the ground so to speak and really doing that hands-on service work it is changing me Um, and so it's questionable in any situation how much helping is helping someone else i do know that we're doing good work but i definitely know in a very deep and visceral way uh what it's doing for me in terms of transforming my being.
1: Here, here. I love that you're integrating Advaitin kind of non-duality alongside of karma yoga based, you know, that's kind of what I'm hearing is if it's all a projection also, I just saw Ryan was speaking on mute, so I'm going to let him talk too. But um, if we're all projecting this seeming reality It must be a part of the mind as well, if it's an outward expansion, you know, that's what I'm hearing from you. So by addressing it, by focusing on it, um, that's a really beautiful kind of integrative way of looking at it. So thank thank you for articulating it. I'm glad it's polishing your own mirror, you selfish man. Yeah. And, and even, I mean, Sri Ramana never said go off and be detached. You know, the, the one of the most kind of stereotypical gurus to me in some in external factors, at least, man sitting on the top of a hill in silence, people come to him. That yeah, That is the guru image. And he never said, you know, go off into the Himalayas and disappear. He always said it was in the mind. It was detaching from your own suffering detaching from your own attachments to things in the world do the work in the world um you know even the kind of most advaitist of them all um suggested social action and the gita talks about this so i'm
0: i'm loving i'm loving this
1: siddharam thank you for for sharing that
0: well and even you know that the joke that was just made right about me being selfish right because of the way i'm framing it but there's actually really deep truth in that because essentially from my readings of the teachings what they're saying is that our deepest wants what our heart wants deeply is to live in alignment with their values like we don't want to be causing pain and suffering to other people like that deeper fulfillment like that's what we want and so as we grow in wisdom wisdom is the realization that we're all connected essentially what we're doing is we're, we're dropping away these false views that allow uh, what we normally think of as selfish tendencies of mind that allow those to to flourish those exist too i mean it's a part of the human shadow but that that deeper want that's rooted in the essence of consciousness itself it does it, it wants to serve love serve remember Those are instructions from our own heart. It's not some should that we have to layer on top of ourselves from some external teaching. You know, there's a reason why those teachings feel intuitively right to us. If that's coming from our own selves, it's we're essentially just, oh, right, I know that that's true, right? It's not because it's some magical formula that we were able to prove intellectually, or we know that that's true to love everyone, to serve everyone. To remember God or to remember the truth or to remember to even do that, right? As this recipe for life. And so as we grow on the path, this is what I've really found for myself. There's this startling realization that we really can trust ourselves. Yeah. As we start to unravel enough and get a little bit of clarity and quiet so that we can listen a little bit more deeply we realize that we really can trust ourselves and that includes trusting our own desire systems. Um, yeah. And that's, that's been something that I've been really sitting with, with lately, just that sense of self self-trust on the path. It's beautiful.
2: Mm-hmm. Instead of constant self-doubt mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. instead of your yeah. voice. You know, relevant to that, I, I just wanted to add this one thing. I'm sorry, I feel like I'm stepping over my panelists here, but um, I'm just, I'm just on fire right now. Um, one thing that I was sharing with a friend recently was that, you know, t- t- to your point of it's coming from the self, um, you know, the, this idea in Western religion and institutional exoteric religion that we're dirty originally sinful, you know, thanks Augustine. Um, and, and, you know, just that whole fear-based religious, um, instrument. The reason it's wrong is because when I sit very still and breathe very deeply, I feel love. I feel peace. I feel calmness. And if I was inherently dirty or evil. If I got more connected with myself, it would be the opposite. It would be painful to connect with my dirty innards. But no, <laughs> what a relief to you know understand <laughs> that you know by by quieting everything else, all the surface level stuff, digging really really deeply. Um, you know, all of that other stuff falls away and you can really tap into, um, you know, what you're talking about, that love, that sense of connectivity and harmony with yourself and with others. It's accessible.
0: Yeah. And that, that part of ourselves, right? That's dirty, as you say, that does exist too. It's just not the deepest part of ourselves. And, um, it's it's, an, it's another element too, as we grow on the path, we start to learn that um, we don't have to be afraid of that part of ourselves either. Sometimes we think about love almost like it's this soft blanket that we can use to cover up the parts of ourself or the parts of the experience that's deeply uncomfortable or that we're grossed out by. Or, But what I've found, and this comes back to the sense of trust, that, that that's not actually what love is. Love is that deeper capacity in our being that can actually just be present with the totality of what it means to be human. And that includes my selfish tendencies of mine. That includes the fact that even though I'm talking about service in this very kind of enlightened view, um, I know that I have selfish tendencies of mine, that there's a part of me, you know, also being a creative, tell me if anyone hasn't experienced this, right? My act of wanting to create and to be a part of that creative process, I know that that's pure and I simultaneously know that uh, there's all sorts of parts of my being that um, are constantly trying to co-opt it, right? Like, I just know that I just, cre- creation is just definitely a part of how I exist in the world and that's a pure act. And there's parts of me that, you know, really have these strong desires to be seen and appreciated and love and, are constantly trying to co-op these things, and that exists either in service work or whatever, right? That those selfish tendencies of mine, as we normally call them, uh, that exists in me, and it, it has never gone away, and it's always present in every moment, essentially. But as with these practices, I get to hold that in a deeper way, and it doesn't have to be driving the show so much. And that also points me back to the sense of trust, is that I can trust that, that I'm on this path and that I'm doing the best that I can, Even though I have these parts of myself that um, are constantly trying to to co-op things or that have these other agendas in there, right? And I've yet to get rid of those things, but I've found that as, as I acknowledge them and hold them in a different way, they don't have to drive the ship so much.
3: You can learn to love them.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I can even love my self-hatred and my self-criticism, yeah? Because love doesn't mean pushing that away either. That's just a part of the mind that that does that. It criticizes everything and judges everything. I can hold that in loving awareness too, and that can just be one other voice that exists. It doesn't have to be my deepest voice. I don't have to give it added extra weight, and I can love it just because it exists, right?
1: We and I just talked about that, I'm <laughs> so I'm right laughing. Now.
4: I know. I'm, I've also been fairly quiet. I don't know. I, I hope you all hope you all can hear me, but I've been having a really hard time with my connection. Okay. Oh, bummer. I didn't want to throw yeah, everyone we off you, okay. by talking. <laughs> okay, You're awesome. Good. No, I mean, Bob and I were just sp- speaking about that today, just loving all of our parts, no matter the ones that I'm perceiving as a bad part. Quote unquote. So you know, struggling, for example, with anxiety, and befriending that anxiety as a part of myself that ultimately is is there to protect me, or at least trying to protect me, um, in some way, and just and loving it and accepting it. Because the more I resist it, the, of course, the the more amplified it is. And by loving it and accepting it, it's almost not running the show nearly as much. I respect it as a part of me. But to your point. It's
0: not leading my life Mm 24-7. Yeah. Well, and I love you pointing out that even something like anxiety, which we normally think of as a bad thing, that it even serves a positive purpose. And uh, I I experienced this just before coming on this podcast. I still, uh, before any kirtan or any podcast or any time where I have to be on, right, whatever, uh, there's a part of me that feels a little bit of nervousness right before Okay, but what I've learned over time is that that doesn't have to be a bad thing and that I don't have to have any story about it. I can just experience it. And what is that doing really? Well, it's kicking up. My my mind is becoming more alert, right? You know, all these things are happening that are positive things. If I'm spun out and I'm caught up in that nervousness, then, yeah, then that can be a detriment. But if I just allow myself to be present with it, not only does it have to not get in the way, but oftentimes it can be an aid. You know, it can be a helpful tool. And so, yeah, this sense of not pushing anything away. uh, And it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing, right? I mean, for people listening, you don't have to totally believe me. It's just, we just believe it enough to be willing to try it out. And what happens is our life, we find more and more areas where, yeah, being present with whatever is going on, uh, it doesn't have to be so terrifying and it can actually be uh, very valid and, and inherently enlivening.
1: Mm. I'm I'm not there yet, but um, Byron Katie has had a line. This is just the point of the episode where I mentioned Byron Katie because um, <laughs> I bring her up every time. Uh, uh-huh. she, she said something like, you know, someone said, do you get nervous before things? And she said, she says, oh, no, what could there be to be concerned about about how others perceive me? like that doesn't you know how how could I ever you know i like i I don't know I think that I feel like that is real like i do <laughs> I do believe that there are very very you know what are they jivan Muktas? you know I think there are very high beings that are you know essentially free of that that kind of voice, but I think that um you know what you guys are talking about is absolutely. Uh, the way there, the way to get, you know, you know, even Ram Das's famous line about the neuroses, right, and how they're not, I haven't got rid of one neuroses at 25 years of meditating and doing yoga, but now they're little goblins. And now I say, hey, hey, anxiety, hey, sexual perversion, ha- haven't seen you in a while, how are you doing, you know, loving that uh, aspect of self. I think that is the way there, but I I couldn't help but mention my, (laughs) my, my queen.
0: Yeah. I, and, and I hear that and I definitely, you know, as we relate to things differently, these innate physiological responses are going to be activated in different ways. I do, I do have a hard time believing though, that Byron Katie has never experienced nervousness. Um, she might just relate to it in a different way. Here, here's an interesting little story. Uh, Jack Cornfield shared this at a Ramdas Beach Day. Every Monday, Ramdas loved swimming, right? Because in his stroke, he, was, he couldn't be mobile. and so in the water, it was this chance of freedom and he had to have life preservers and all these things. but he could control his own body and move around, right? And so we would all gather on Mondays. and on this particular day, Jack Cornfield was there and he talked about an experience he had where he recently had a health scare and essentially he thought that he was dying and he felt terror in his body, he was afraid to die and after this health scare, his first thought was, man, I guess I failed the test, right? and we hear this a lot, you know, but then he said he was reflecting on it more after that and came to the conclusion, well, I guess I really didn't like." the body and the mind is afraid to die that's what they do and what these awareness practices are about are not identifying that and just being present with whatever's going on uh, another story that brings to mind is uh, Suzuki Roshi right well-known Zen teacher uh, he was talking to his Zen students and they asked him you know how do you, how do you what do you think it's going to be like when you die and and there was this assumption there that he was going to have this peaceful death and so his answer his response was i don't know maybe i'll die like this and he started screaming and kicking around his arms and legs right (laughs) because what are we really talking about i mean if we're not identified with this body mind system then why isn't that a valid why is that a less conscious way to die for instance i mean these kind of stories i think they can really flip our mind about what we're talking about when we're talking about the spiritual path and when we talk about mm-hmm. disidentifying with who we think we are, what that really means. You know, so I, I, I'm, I, I'm constantly finding that the ideas I used to have even a couple years ago, a couple months ago about what it means to live on the spiritual path, I'm constantly learning that, that those aren't necessarily as valid as I thought they were. I'm constantly learning that whatever little spiritual awakenings I've had, that a lot of these ideas, these idealizations, they're kind of extrapolations from that. And a lot of those extrapolations have a lot of dominant cultural thinking intertwined in them that I just wasn't able to see. So I'm constantly being stripped away to just this... I have no idea what, what a more advanced stage on the spiritual path looks like. I just, I just don't know anymore.
1: Well, when that really comes across Hidurama in your writing, I really wanted to read um, this piece from Radical Unknowing, which is essentially what you're uh, alluding to, which I really enjoyed. Um, <laughs> you said a dear friend recently told me that he didn't like the word intuition. I think its meaning has been diluted, he said. I can relate to this. We often see it as some sort of character trait that we possess superpower immune from the checks and balances of logic, reason, and evidence. Where I live in the rural Redwoods of Northern California, there's a community member who's convinced that certain drum rhythms, especially the rhythms used in reggae, hip-hop, and pop music, are of a lower vibration. Because he is so sensitive and intuitive, he can feel his energy drain just being around these sounds, and he's even gotten sick from it. I once told him that I did not have the same experience that he did, and his response was that I was not evolved enough to notice. He claimed it was because i was an intellectual he proselytizes others so they too can awaken to these rhythms disharmonious nature for him ridding the world of this evil sound is a key part of achieving world peace this may seem like an extreme example but i think many of us do this in less obvious ways in my counseling work with people i have found that a major obstacle to receiving new information is when an quote, intuitive person has access to otherworldly knowledge when someone knows something it shuts off the possibility of being wrong. This is true regardless of where the information comes from, but intuitive knowledge often seems especially immune from correction. Instead of shaping and redirecting our inner compass to better fit reality, we create a list of justifications and beliefs to maintain our intuitive identity. This creates a middle wall that keeps us trapped in our own projections, imaginations, thought constructs, and isolated worlds. We stop listening. Really, really sharp, man. I mean, I think we've all, um, th- what you're kind of calling out to me in that piece is, um, you know, aspects of the spiritual dumb, you know, where there's so many, um, every, folks are carrying so much into every new moment, new moment, new moment that it's really restrictive. It's really restrictive and it takes constant analysis to stay open. So I just love that.
0: Yeah, one one of the things, part of my opening into the spiritual path was really exploring the worldview of agnosticism to its edges. Right? So th- that's essentially what my stance was. You know, I don't know. I don't know if there's a God. I don't know. Also with that, I was very rooted in a scientific materialistic view of the world, right? And so taking that sense of not knowing of agnosticism to its edges meant that I started to get to this place where I saw that even the tenets of logical thinking, I'm not saying I disagree with that, I I find great value in it, but that those basic tenets, essentially at some point, you're, you're taking that worldview on faith. And... And that started to open up me to this realm where, with the aid of psychedelics and, and other practices, I started to just actively explore and take on different worldviews, you know, as a core spiritual practice. And And what's interesting is to really take on a worldview, you have to be caught in it. I mean, otherwise you're just reading about it. And so this meant, uh, in terms of, like smoking lots of pot and reading conspiracy theories and really getting in them and seeing the world from those perspectives, you know. It, at that time, when I was in my early twenties, the big conspiracy theory, you know, had to do with like nine eleven and and all these things and right this idea that it was this plot orchestrated by inside of the U.S. government and and living in that reality for a while and seeing it and seeing seeing the all the feelings of paranoia I had and all these things, but also seeing that once I was in that, that worldview, all the evidence seemed to point to it, right? And um, eventually it started to crack when I started to, again, just challenge the fact that even if there are unknowns about what happened, right, you know, how many assumptions are there between those unknowns and, and forming a worldview around it? So experimenting with that and experimenting with spiritual worldviews, which is really interesting because in spiritual worldviews, These are, generally speaking, both untestable and untested uh, views of reality, right? These aren't things that we we can't do some science experiment to prove or disprove most core spiritual frameworks. So we start to form a different orientation around these things where I found rather than thinking about it, if it's true or false, especially for things that are untested and untestable, it seems to me that it's much more skillful to view them in terms of, is this a helpful view of reality? Is this serving me in some way, right? And so I, I carried this worldview for a long time. And that, that kind of core agnosticism is still very rooted in me because the truth is it it has served me really well. Um, but what I've started to find also on the, the flip side of this is that um, we don't just benefit from different worldviews, but worldviews have side effects as well. And, and that's a, that's been a really interesting thing. And all of us have core worldviews. And that some of these worldviews are so deeply rooted that they're not like costumes that we can just switch out at bay. right? They're so deeply rooted that not only do we have a hard time seeing it, but when we interact with people around us, they're not even really able to mirror this worldview for us because they're caught in the same worldview when we really talk about how deep our individualistic, materialistic culture is, right? And so we're all caught in these worldviews. And that's part of the reason why using this critical reasoning and this lens, uh, to me, once I started to gain insight that that was important on my own spiritual path, then all of a sudden I could see that actually all these spiritual traditions um, talk about how important it really is as a protective factor on the path. And, you know, that piece I wrote, I wrote that long before QAnon and all these modern day where it's just so obvious how caught in worldview we can be. But, you know, what I think is really important about it is that um, we are also just as caught in, in worldviews and ours might not be as obvious or ridiculous, um, but we all have these core assumptions about reality that we have not looked at yet. And so um, intuition is key to the spiritual path. The ability to trust ourselves is key. And doubt is a mechanism of the mind that exists for a reason. I, I'm always going to be very cautious around people that are a little bit too confident. You know, and as far as I can tell, the people that are really in touch of their intuition, it's because they're willing to be uh, very comfortable with that discomfort of not knowing. Hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah willing to question their own intuition and in themselves
1: <laughs> yeah
2: in every moment yeah yeah
4: hmm. that's so beautiful i'm honestly
2: oh melina you got your audio muted <laughs>
4: i was saying that is so beautiful that i'm actually speechless <laughs> <laughs> so as i have been this entire podcast that was so beautiful i feel yeah it was very
2: powerful
1: Right on. I, I feel compelled, you know, one thing you mentioned about the beliefs of others and they're caught and we're caught. and um, not in an attempt to redeem my earlier Byron Katie comment, but she did say this <laughs> also, <laughs> which was, "You know, people making bombs. There are people making bombs right now. They have the intention to blow them up and hurt people if you believed what they believed, wouldn't you be building bombs right now? You know, really, what that does to me, what you're describing, is create an immense level of empathy and compassion. And um, it doesn't mean we condone it. You know, you actually wrote something similar. Now I'm kind of remembering. You wrote a a similar piece uh, in your essays as well about, um, you know, people who commit abuse. Well they're typically abused. You know, there's this whole cycle and this generational uh, wheel that's spinning. Um, and so we don't condone the actions, but to the Neem Karoli Baba paraphrasing Kabir, what is it? Do what you will with another person, but never put them out of your heart. Yeah. You know, it seems like, you know, what, what you're talking about and kind of the theme of so much to do with Ram Das and just the Kripa scene is love. And loving others and loving ourselves, kind of despite all of these trappings and flaws and all of the
0: above. Yeah. Hmm. It's it's interesting with those teachings. So, I've I've been on both sides of this in in my life in my social work career, where I've I've done mental health counseling to people that were born where they experienced trauma because the state essentially took their father, usually, out of the home and put them in prison, right? And I can see the effect that that had on that person. And simultaneously, I've worked in communities where this is happening, a disproportionate race, and you can see what happens to the entire community when large numbers of people, when large numbers of family systems get disrupted like that, right? So I know deeply that our current prison system doesn't work, and it's not serving people. And I've also had the experience of working with people in domestic abuse situations where my work with them is canceling them so they can have the strength, so they can go to court, and they can testify against their abuser so that that person goes to prison because that's the only way that they're ever going to feel safe in this world. You know, I've had that experience too. And so, you know, when we talk about these teachings are so profound because they exist on all levels when when we see them on paper do what you do with another person but don't put them out of your heart that kind of sounds very romantic in a sense i think it's supposed to because it's supposed to inspire us but when we're really down in the nitty gritty of it it's it, it can be so painful that reality you know of of course that person needs to feel safe and in our current system that means that this person needs to go into our current prison industrial complex and what that person did is not okay and it shouldn't be allowed and this person has a right to feel safe right and that's not going to be possible if that person's not behind bars and i know what that person going to prison is going to do in terms of also perpetuating family dynamics and perpetuating systemic violence down the line you know so it These kind of teachings really do take us into just a very core and fragile level of reality that it doesn't feel comforting, but I think that it can inspire the type of action and way to be in the world that can actually make some type of significant change. The
1: intimacy on both sides and and almost kind of the du- dualistic nature, right? You know, this person ought to go into this broken system to make this person feel safe. And yet at the same time, this system is so broken and so clunky and terrible. Um, but I think there's, e- there's even another, you know, almost like that's what, the counter to that is the domestic abuser going to prison. But the other counter is, um, you know... The and I think you know I feel like I might have seen something you guys wrote about it or I know Ram Das wrote about um, people in solitary that have awakening experiences because they finally got had a minute to breathe and you know I'm in complete alignment with you politically in the um, you know injustices of the system and uh, the the inhumanity frankly it's it's um you know, it it really is treating people as less than and, um, and it's, it's disgusting in many ways. And I got to see that, um, with with my own eyes, but, um, at the same time, the individual that's open, you know, I mean, I know a guy, Scott, Scott and Ryan and I, uh, filmed this, this movie where this guy, Richie, um, became a yoga master in prison and found a yoga book. And, uh, you know there was a there was a community yoga austin CYA, went into the prisons and taught yoga and he said i i got more free there than than out here now i got to worry about bills and food and everything else and i can't get a job you know that's another effect of the system is that these guys are are completely lacking in their economic opportunities but at the same time it was such a transformative granted there was great suffering but it was such a transformative experience for him because he was open to it it was his karmic moment or you know whatever the formula is uh that can work for people too so
0: it's i don't know being open to all of that Well, i i've had this experience so many times where you know it's going to be a specific type of person well there's going to be various specific types of people that are going to come to a kirtan at a prison so, so some of the things that people might not be aware of is that generally, if you're going to go to something like that, uh, you're giving something up. And it might be you're giving up your nightly phone call or your shower, right? You only get so much free time. So it's this is a big choice, right, that's being made to come to an event like that. And so there's obviously going to be people that are hungry on all different levels for the teachings, just like I'm hungry for the teachings. Um, but I'm always struck there, continuously I come in contact either through letter writing or through the, the kirtans or through other work I've done in prisons with people that have done way more healing work and are way more in touch with themselves than the vast majority of people that I meet on the outside. And it's, it's incredible, you know, when, when you come in contact with that and for me that the right response to that is then to question like, why are you there? You know, like what, what good is this do like what social good is this doing right and um for myself i i want to always come down to a feeling of awe and amazement that that's possible that people can do that work in those conditions because the, the truth is um the vast majority of people that go to solitary uh, it just deepens their trauma you know it's for the vast majority of people who go into prison, I mean, they're dealing with sexualized violence, physical violence. You know, it is it is not a place that's meant for healing. And so it is incredible that there's various people, you know, the, their karmic conditions are ripe, that they can do that work. And coming to, back to this idea of sacred community, what made that possible? What made that possible was service-minded people making sure that they had some access to the teaching, some access to the practices, right? And that person... Totally that you talked about that came out of that prison, uh, how much more could he deepen all of that if also there was a better safety net for him to come into, right? So, you know, we we can be awakened through all sorts of things. You know, trauma, trauma is some, so many people can be awakened through trauma. People are awakened through near-death experiences. You know, that's true, and that is a part of just this mysterious nature of reality. And at the same time, you know, we are led to believe that, it is a part of our job to limit suffering where we can. And especially if it's suffering that is human caused in the first place, uh, you know, that seems like a good place to start. You're here, here.
3: Yeah, it really, seems really like it'll be powerful. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead, Ryan. I just to say really, really powerful points of view. I really appreciate you sharing your experiences in the prisons and um, yeah, it's really beautiful stuff.
2: Yeah. Same.
4: <laughs> I just have one thought that I really do want to get out there, and just it's been sitting on me. But to your point about part of our job is to, you know, to eliminate some of the suffering, especially ones that are coming from human tendencies, it does bring me to the idea that we started this conversation on with dependency and the beauty behind codependency in order to that community the sacred community piece and and then the the big abstract line of what society at least in the western culture is and how we push for individu- individualistic um, you know success productivity and I'm and I'm, it's just to see that vast difference and see how that is us creating our own suffering as well by buying into to these thoughts these predisposed storylines and ways of living that are perceptions that people before us created I just can't help but just verbalize that. Um, And it's literally hitting us in the face, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely, right? And that, when we talk about this kind of service work we're talking about, it's, that's why I started saying it's really for me, right? Because it's, if we need each other, then I'm led to believe that me lending a hand, doing my part, that that's going to change my being just as it's going to, Potentially enable someone else to, ch- to change their being. And the sense, right? We talked about community and trust earlier. The result is a sense that the more I lean into interdependence, the more I recognize that um, I haven't gained one thing on the spiritual path without someone else, right? Even having access to a teaching, it's because someone said it, someone wrote it down, someone put it in a book, someone donated it to a library, whatever. Right, and and I'm gonna need more help down the line. That's just a fact. I know that there's gonna be times well, in you. my life when I'm gonna need <laughs> immense amount of help from other people. And so there's also this sense of of trust too. Like yeah, that feels really scary. Can I trust that community is gonna hold me up when I need it? And uh, that just feels also like a more real and vulnerable and humble way to be in the world and also to serve from. Mm.
1: yeah i agree i um you know i think the the disheartening thing to me about modern society is you know to melina's point the individualistic materialistic consumerist tendencies you know were pedal to the metal on uh, products and trash in the oceans and all these things because people think that the external forms like that will make them happy and it they just haven't figured it out yet you know um does it give temporary happiness of course fleeting uh you know and it's the uh, the tesla must control real well you know i mean it's the, there's there's some some joy in the external stimuli that's why it's so alluring but it runs out And it isn't ultimately, you know, that deeper sense of bliss that you experience when you're doing these practices, which include service, which include helping other people. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm optimistic. I like to be optimistic about the fact that, you know, it's kind of like if I've put that together, then anybody can, you know, I've seen through (laughs) an aspect of the futility of the external uh with the help to your point with the help of yogananda and uh the buddha and the gospel of thomas and you know uh and ram das of course and so many um but if i if i've seen through it then
0: it's got to be pretty obvious guys yeah Yeah, that's that's well said yeah because there's an element of it that's, that's nothing special right i mean it's Sometimes I think back on there's this one distinct moment and I don't know anymore if my mind has just melded multiple moments into this one moment, but I kind of remember this time I seven or eight useful disclaimer, I was about seven or eight and laying in bed and falling asleep and essentially not having any thoughts or the space between thoughts was big enough that there was just this felt sense of the mystery of, Experience right and I had no words for it, but that visceral felt experience of being alive I remember that I remember being touched by it in a different way and not even knowing there was something to talk about right and Now I have much more language and practices and I've read all these spiritual texts and there's all sorts of belief systems I can put around it and languages I can use but essentially It's no different what, what I'm talking about or touching upon today is that felt experience when I was about seven or eight. And I just know that all of us, all of us have touched that place in our being because it's who we are. And, and we've all had moments where we've had momentary awarenesses of that. And um, so, yeah, th- there's this element of it that, that is. It's, it's, nothing, it's, it's nothing special. It's, that's why we say we have these teachings like it's our birthright right cuz it's who we are it's it's the state of being alive yeah and, and there there's a reason why not only is it this root awareness we have but also that we all kind of intuitively know and agree that it's our highest value right whether we're calling it love or truth right there, there's this a universal sense of that and that that does give me a sense of hope you know it's a hope that's mediated by a lot of factors and global climate change and you know i i i want to have a hope that's based in realism but 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 also i, I think you're right too that you know but also the real s- yeah yeah
1: <laughs> i like Not that yeah <laughs> Re-
0: realism yeah hope rooted in realism and the real that's that's good good.
1: (laughs) Any questions, gang, before I read more of my favorite book? (laughs) This is pretty close to what you just said. Beliefs masquerading as truth. Truth is that which can stand on its own. It needs no support. There's no amount of evidence or reasoning that can either prove or disprove truth. We often call this type of knowing faith, but there is quite a bit of confusion about faith. Faith comes from the heart. It cannot be found in the mind. This misunderstanding has pushed many into increasingly blind, rigid, and unhealthy viewpoints. By taking a thought and clinging to it against all evidence and reason, it traps us in the prison of our own limited perspective. It cuts off all possibility for healthy discussion, makes many feel that their religion is the only one and blindly leads millions to challenge the findings of science. This has made many agnostics and atheists skeptical of the role of faith in today's world. Faith is not a belief that we hold too tightly. When our beliefs are misplaced as faith, we feel the need to squeeze them as if we are trying to compress a fleeting sand into a solid rock. This squeezing may create the illusion of solidity but it requires effort to continue the charade. The second we stop holding, it crumbles. Faith requires none of that. It takes no energy or holding. Truth just is. It is found through the continual letting go of clinging in the mind. Could keep going, but (laughs) point made. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I love the way you put that. I've I've noticed that a lot. See, I, see versions of faith that feel very fragile um, because people are trying to defend it with proof. And it's just it, it, it reveals how fragile it is to them because they feel threatened by, you know, whatever feels threatening at the moment, whether it's science or another group of people who believe something different or um, it just feels very fragile when people try to get
1: kind of def- fear based.
2: Fear. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's kind of sad to, you know, to, to witness and also scary to, to witness sometimes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I found th- that's one of the things that's changed for me, right? In the beginnings of the path, I did, I would mistake people that seemed really confidence confident. I would mistake that as them, you know, they really know. Right. But now I see a mature faith is its it's i find it in people that are just very comfortable with doubt right because if our faith or trust to use a different word if if it's strong enough then then we know that doubt if if it, if our faith is really rooted in reality then what is doubt going to do to to dissuade that or take that away right because doubt it is it's it's an important mechanism of the mind and i found for myself the more that i can inspect even my deepest spiritual beliefs um the more i can see you know are those really serving me or not like anymore and maybe a certain belief served me a couple years ago and it did truly orient me towards that deeper ineffable faith at that time but maybe now there's elements of that belief that maybe need to be edited or readjusted because maybe it's not really serving me anymore. And yeah, and if I'm too attached, if I start to notice that clinging, um, that's become more and more of a sign for myself, like, oh, I need I need to take a look at this because faith should be rooted in freedom. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. I like, I like that. that Continually re-examining. Yeah. 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 Cedar
1: Ram, tell us some books that... Um, we should read besides yours wow it's just a handful and then wow. you could probably recommend 31
0: well i will start with one of my favorite books that is a little bit lesser known from my teacher ramdas uh you know most people are aware of be here now and that is an exquisite and beautiful book uh, but One of the books that really opened my heart in the last, I guess it was about a decade ago now when it was written is the book Be Love Now. And that book didn't get as much necessarily mainstream traction, but it is an exquisite book. It's really kind of captures the the full evolution of his teachings in terms of bringing in loving awareness into the present moment awareness. And uh, it's an exquisite book you know i i love it even i'll I'll turn to it again and again even just those open those first opening pages um where essentially he talks about just imagine that we are loved totally and completely just the way we are just for existing and it's just paragraph after paragraph of really you know deepening that that awareness and so that's an exquisite book and um i would say anything by mirabai star uh she's an author that i i mean one she's a friend and an elder and i consider her to be a mentor in a lot of ways i really look up to her but um she's someone that i i feel like what inspires me about her is she has what i see as that mature faith you know where she's very comfortable with doubt and uh she also writes exquisitely. Anything by her. She's, she's done a lot of translations of a lot of the Christian mystics, uh, including St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila. Um, and then she has some more recent books that have come out from her own voice as well. Um, so anything by her. And uh, the Bhagavad Gita, you, you brought that up. I own I can share another little story. Uh, In my first private one-on-one meeting with Ram Dass, I I was there and it was this, it was beautiful. It it was just a beautiful, exquisite moment in time for me that's forever just burned in my being. And we had this long pause and we just went to all these different states of consciousness together. and, And then we're in this more verbal space and kind of out of nowhere he just said it's good to read spiritual books and i and i got real flustered because it really brought up all this stuff for me and i was like really because i'm constantly reading spiritual books and i feel like i should be meditating instead and sometimes i think it's just an escape <laughs> and it you know I'm, I'm i've really, read all of them like, already i'm like really spinning out you know like and it was and there's an element of it that's true for me you know i i have this really strong inquisitive mind that likes to be engaged with things and uh, engaging in contemplative sit down practices is good for me right to loosen that hold Um, so I'm really neurotic about that and he just kind of stops me he says it again he says read spiritual books (laughs) (laughs) and uh, that was also a part of me recognizing that I didn't have to fight myself either on the spiritual path like I have these innate characteristics of being you know I'm I I love playing music so that can be a part of my spiritual path I love reading I'm a voracious reader I've always written you know the creative process can be a part of my spiritual path these things don't have to be separate right Um, but the other thing he said in that meeting is he said you should read the Bhagavad Gita and my my first response this is real this is what i said i said oh i've already read that (laughs) he he said you should read it again uh so now i own i think seven or eight different copies of it all different translations you know that's i now see it as a a lifelong study um so i would recommend that for anyone ramdas's book his reader on the bhagavad-gita is really great kind of companion guide to it, past to mm-hmm. God.
1: Yogananda's uh, Can't Help But Mention God Talks to Arjuna is f- terrific oh. uh, and and voluminous. I mean, yeah. I don't think I've got A, a through Z with it. Uh, I kind of look up a passage and read the 10 pages on each line, you know, <laughs> that kind of
0: commentary. Wow. So uh, I've forgotten God. about that book. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'll just add to your list. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we're all open friends here. <laughs> yeah, that's no, great. Will, will or, you sit around will... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you need another one. Um, will you tell just briefly, kind of before you take us out, before we uh, before we depart for the evening, Sutaram? Will you tell us that story about the hitchhiker? Because um, when you said the Bhagavad Gita Ramdas, and I thought of your little story about the Ramayana.
0: Sure. Yeah, I'll tell that story and then um, before we go if I can just make a couple plugs about our Please. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Tell everything. Cool. Tell everybody. Yeah. So so it was I hadn't been living at the house for that long, maybe a few months, and a bunch of people had come to Maui that were all with Neem Karoli Baba, Ramdas's guru, the saint that he was with in the late 60s and early 70s. And so and they were all on island because it was just a friend. It was a family get together of their satsang to celebrate that it had been forty years since Be Here Now came out, and for them it was really a celebration of their time with Maharaji together. And I got to be there as Ramdas's caregiver, and that was really cool for me. So you know, Ragu Marcus, who's the head of Love Serve Remember Foundation, Krishanas was there. Uh, Parvati Marcus, who wrote the book Love Everyone, was there. I mean, all sorts of just really amazing people were there. Uh, And then also K.K. Saw was there. K.K. is an Indian devotee who became really close friends and family with all the Westerners that were there because he was their translator and also because Maharaj instructed him to take care of them. And he took that to heart. And so, you know, the family bond was really tight. And so a lot of people are there on island, and I got to have all these cool conversations with a lot of people. Two of those conversations are important to the story. One is that KK was there and I really wanted to talk to him. I'm actually remembering something right now that I have not I have not remembered this part of the story in a really long time nor did I write about this in the book. I I wanted to talk to KK but he was really quiet. He he was not a talkative person. But I did see that Like someone came because they wanted to seek advice from another person on maui basically they wanted to have his darshan you know like a private one-on-one spiritual meeting with them and they spent like an hour together and i was like what this person who i basically don't see talking at all and i remember talking to ramdas about it and just saying i'd love to talk to kk but i don't know what about and 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 also i brought to ramdas's mind tied to the bhagavad-gita uh, that this one translation I had, it talked about how basically if you did bad things, you went to hell. And I was like, this doesn't seem to resonate with me. Like, what, what, what are they talking about with hell? You know, and and Ramdas said, oh, you should ask KK. He, you know, he's a scholar of the Gita and also the Ramayana. You should ask him about that. And, uh, and that would be a way that you can talk to him. I was like, okay. So I found a moment when KK was all alone and I brought him this question and. And he just pulled out, he knew, exact, he knew the exact page that the answer that my question was from the Ramayana where basically he talks about essentially in the, the Hindu model, hell is not some eternal place. There's just there's different levels of consciousness and they all have essentially different amounts of suffering in them and it has to do with our karma and, and ultimately we're all on the spiritual journey to God. And I was like, okay, that makes sense to me. <laughs> But in that meeting, literal staircase also, of levels. Okay, I got it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just I wasn't satisfied with this idea that there was potentially some eternal hell that people burn in, right? This Western right. model, and and that was the word they used in that translation. It didn't say eternal, but that word hell has a lot of connotations that wasn't necessarily meant to be there. Um, but he also said something to me. He said, you know, you should really read the. Tulsidas Ramayana. There's many versions of the Ramayana. Valmiki wrote the first one, at least in written form. Uh, but the Tulsidas Ramayana was really popular around the area where Maharaji named Krilibaba lived because it was written in Avadi, a dialect of Hindi. It wasn't written in Sanskrit. It was written so that common people could know the story and understand it. And so in our satsang, that's kind of become a primary text or version of the Ramayana. And that is the version that KK was a scholar of. So he told me I should read it. He said, You know, Ramdas has multiple copies of it. I'm sure he would loan you one. He knew Ramdas had multiple copies of it because every time KK came to visit Ramdas, he would give him a copy of it. Uh, <laughs> so, which is a beautiful, exquisite kind of element of their longstanding relationship. So I start reading that. And in the process, I found really quickly that, especially in the way Tulsidas writes it, it wasn't just about the story. I mean, I would re- read kind of modern, abridged versions of the Ramayana. I knew the basic story of Hanuman and Ram and Sita. But those abridged versions, you know, they're, they're small, like modern book form. And this is a fat book. And... Why is it so fat? Well, there's just page after page of essentially devotional poetry describing everything. And it's so over the top and so flowery. And at some point something cracked and I got to be in this devotional mood that he was writing in. And I saw, oh, he's not just telling a story. He's, I mean, yes, the story is important, but he's also using the story as a vehicle to essentially invite us into the bhav, into the devotional mood. So I started reading it really slowly. I, I wanted to savor it. I wanted to only read it when I could be in that bhav with Tulsi Das. So that's one of the things that happened. The other thing is that Krishnas was there, and at that point in time, like, I like worshipped him. Like he was the the first big kirtan I had ever been in. He was the re- person that inspired me to buy my harmonium, you know. So uh, I was definitely. It was hard for me to act natural around him. We'll just say that. You know, I was like Mm -hmm. trying. I was like trying to act. I'm going to be cool. I'm going to be cool around Krishna Das. Um, (laughs) And we were talking at some point and he said, yeah, you know, you should, you should just chant 108 Hanuman Chalisas. For people listening who don't know, Hanuman Chalisa, rather than being call and response chanting, it is this about a seven minute long 40 verse prayer uh, to Lord Hanuman, and it was a chant that I had learned at that point because it was really important to Ramdas and to the satsang around Maharaji. He's like, Yeah, you should just chant 108 of them. And he said it so casually. And I was like, Chant 108? <laughs> I, had ne- I had never heard of this before. <laughs> He's like, Yeah, you know, it's, it's fine. You know, it doesn't have to be a big deal. You, just, you light a candle. He said, You're allowed to take bathroom breaks. You can drink coffee. And he said, And you don't have to sing all of them. If you want, you can read some of them. That, that was the extent of my instruction. That's what he told me. But I was like, Okay. So then everyone leaves the island. I have this practice. I'm reading the Ramayana every night before bed. And Krishna told me I should chant 108 Hanuman Chalisas. So at that point in time, I got one day off a week where and it wasn't like I was doing stuff all the time, but you know, I needed to be around to help with things. And there was one day where, you know, if, if help needed to be had, someone else was gonna do that help, right? I had this one day off. So I decided to take my day off on a Tuesday, which is said to be Hanuman's day. And I sat down at the edge of the property. I had this makeshift temple that I'd built out of tarps and this canopy structure. And, and I would chant. And so I sat down and do my 108 Hanuman Chalisas. And it took about eight hours in total. And at that point in time, chanting was so powerful for me. It just it blasted me into bliss realms like every single time. And even though I knew that the teachings say that it's not actually about what we feel, right? feelings are secondary, I mean if we feel good that that's meant to be enjoyed, but that's not what we're chasing after with practice, right? We're talking about something deeper than feeling. And even though I knew that, because chanting always brought me into those bliss realms, I kind of had this idea that if I was chanting all day, Who knows what would happen? It would just completely Mm -hmm. annihilate me, you know, in the sun Mm -hmm. or something like that. And that's not what happened. What happened was I had a lot of body pain and I experienced boredom, which I had never really experienced boredom chanting before. And I was chanting a lot. So that was a new thing for me. And so fatigue, boredom, body pain, frustration, you know, having to use the will a little bit more to stay with the practice. This is very interesting it was very new for me, for that practice. You know, I had done extended meditation sits, but for chanting, it had never been like that. So I was a little bit confused about it, even though I felt like I shouldn't be because I knew the teachings say that it's just about the practice and yada, yada, yada. So that's what's going through my mind. And then Krishnas calls the very next day. He didn't call the house all that often. And I didn't pick up the phone all that often because if Dasima was there, she would answer it. At that point in time, Dasima and Ramdas were both gone. The phone rang, so I answered the phone. And Krishnas happened to be calling just to check in to see how Ramdas was doing, which he didn't do all that often. I will say, in the three years I was on Maui, that was the only time I ever answered the phone to have Krishnas on the other line. (laughs) (laughs) So I told Krishnas, hey, I just chanted 108 Hanuman Chalisas yesterday. It's kind of weird that you're calling right now. (laughs) He said, it's not weird at all. That's how Maharaji works. You know, Krishna is kind of gruff with those things. So he said it like that and I was like, oh y- yeah, right. And he said, well, how'd it go? And so I sheepishly told him the whole extent of my experience and my struggles and his response was good, it's good. You know, we want the immediate hit but these practices work on us over lifetimes. He said, you know, Maharaji used to have us go and chant all day, sometimes for 10 hours at a time. We would go through all those states. And what it did is it worked on us. It gave us a different relationship to the practice. It's like, okay. So when I got off that phone, I knew that there was more work for me with that practice. And so I decided to dedicate the next few Tuesdays, my one day off a week, to doing that practice. So for the next month, so four total, uh, I did 108 Hanumanchalisas. Chalisas. During that same time, I'm also reading the Ramayana, Every night, and the Ramayana uh, is the text that the Hanuman Chalisa draws from. They're essentially telling the same story. The Hanuman Chalisa is specifically about Hanuman, a being that exemplifies perfect service and devotion to God, and he's one of the characters from the Ramayana. So I'm doing these two practices simultaneously and never should go without saying that Hanuman was definitely on my mind, and I was seeing him everywhere. And some, like sometimes I'd look at the clouds and I would see Hanuman in the clouds, you know, that kind of thing. It, it wasn't anything that was worth writing home about, except that it was profound for me because I was just very saturated in Hanuman. But this one event happened towards the end of the month that I will always remember. I picked up a hitchhiker at Mana Foods, which is a health food store, this tiny little health food store on the North shore of Maui in this town called Paia. And I picked up this hitchhiker there and he needed a ride out to an area that's known as Twin Falls, which is fairly close to Ram Dass' home. And so I agreed to give him a ride. And he got on my car and immediately noticed I had on my dashboard a picture of, of Ram and Hanuman hugging. Ram in the text is said to be an incarnation of God on earth in the form of a king, a king that was exiled out of his kingdom and had to be banished in the forest for 14 years. And that's all part of the, the lila of the story. So this hitchhiker I see sees this picture and he gets so excited. And he starts talking about Hanuman. I'm like, oh, wow, what great luck. And so I'm talking about Hanuman with him and we're talking about Hanuman and we're driving and it comes time to drop him off. And he looks at me he looked right in my eyes. You know, sometimes when people are gonna say something really profound, they look at you and they have this certain look. And they talk in this voice and it's their profound voice and it leads you to believe that what they're gonna say is really important. So he really has me engrossed in, I'm really drawn in into his eyes and his voice. And he says, you know that they say, when demons see Ram, they only see death. And it caught me so off guard, as a like, okay, I, all right. I mean, I was led to believe that it was profound because he's using the profound voice and he's looking at me right in my <laughs> eyes. you know, really, we we're really eye gazing, which is something in the new age communities on Maui happened a lot. So I'm left to believe that this is important somehow, but I'm really confused and I, I leave him there, drive back to Ramdas's, and I keep thinking, out of all the things that he could have said, why did he say that? It was really strange. Because of the way he said it, and it was our parting moment, it stayed in my mind, and I'm thinking about it. And then I go, I have dinner, I'm doing some other things, I kind of forget about it. I go, I sit down, and I read my nightly Ramayana story. And there's this point in the story where Ram, who is specifically God on earth, but he's the masculine form of God on earth, um, and He's there in a human body, and he's going into Mittala, which is the town that Sita, which is the feminine form of God on Earth, uh, manifested. And of course, Sita and Ram are not two separate beings; they're one being. Sita Ram is one being, right? A being that's both masculine and feminine, is both form and formless. It's beyond anything that we can conceive of. But in the story, manifested as two beings, so that they can enact their Leela on the earth. So this is the moment where Ram is walking into Mithila, the town where Sita lives, and they're about to meet for the first time on earth. And of course, when they meet, they fall instantly in love. You know, it's the most glorious form of love at first sight, because in reality, they've known each other. They are each other for eternity. So this is about to happen in the story. And so Ram is walking through the town, and all of the townspeople are seeing Ram for the first time. And everyone sees him according to their own highest ideals. So the warriors see Ram as the most glorious warrior. And uh, the women, specifically the single women that are looking for companions, they see Ram as the most glorious man. right? And it talks about how the ascetics, the yogis, they see Ram as... Just, they see him in his cosmic form with all of his heads and hands, right? And it talks about how the devotees see Ram as the highest source of all bliss. And then right there on the page, um, out of over a thousand pages, I read this line. And it says, the demons that were there, cleverly disguised as princes, looked at Ram and saw only death. And it was just one of those moments <laughs> Where the hair stands on end, and it just—you know—what's what's what's really going on here? And granted, that was a fleeting moment too.
1: He said, basically, yeah.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that was a fleeting moment too, right? That was a visceral response, but it was pointing to something deeper than even me having my mind blown in that reality in that moment. And what I've come to see about these stories is, I don't care anymore about. that's something that really happened in the past or not you know I have no way to know that some people it's really important to them to believe that I don't know if it's that or if it's just some mythological story or whatever but what I know from my own felt experience is that that story serves and other stories in that realm these spiritual stories serve as gateways into a level of reality that exists right now right there's an element of them where Ram and Sita meeting for the first time is happening right now in this moment, right? So, by reading these stories, by doing these practices, it's it's doing something to us that's deeper than even our felt experience in the moment. Yeah. Gateways, thank
1: you so much. What a beautiful <laughs> close. I had to. Uh i'm kind of clinging in a way to cedar rams time now at this point um but i'm really glad you shared that because i loved that story in the book um give us give us your plugs of the Crippa group how can we support the work
0: you guys do yeah thank you so uh, so our website kripa.guru is a place that people can go if they want to find out more about our music if they want to support us, any of our service outreach that we're doing, we are under the fiscal sponsorship of Hanuman Maui, which is a 501 non-profit. Hanuman Maui is has, what has grown out of the home that Ram Dass lived in. And we're all part of this. And essentially we've just built a Hanuman temple on the grounds and it, it's turning into this open, it's a loving awareness sanctuary that people can come for spiritual recharge. And so our service work is housed under them. And so if people are interested in that, they can go to hanumanmaui.org. But our website, kripa.guru, we do accept tax-deductible donations, and that is what enables us to do the service outreach work that we're doing. And also, if anyone listening feels inspired and is looking for maybe any additional support on their path, uh, we do offer one-on-one video chat spiritual support that We offer an entirely donation basis. There's not even a suggested donation and it's not, you know, there's no pressure with that. And that's a part of our desire to, again, make the teachings and practices accessible to everyone. So that's also a really big service that we've been offering. I've been finding a a lot of joy in it, especially during this time of COVID. And it's been really beautiful to connect with people from all over the world on their spiritual paths. Um, So if people go to Kripa.guru, they can find out about all of that. And then, yeah, I imagine in the the show notes, people can find links for where to purchase my book and things like that. I will say that all the proceeds from the book are going to support our, you know, service outreach projects. Um, Wonderful. Thank you so much,
1: Sudaran. It's been a pleasure. Um, We'll definitely promote all those links in the description and um, yeah just really appreciated your time um and your insights on uh, all these different concepts and it's really clear that you embody this practice so um, i know i've learned a lot and and hopefully it was helpful for for everybody else as much as it was for me I, i'm i'm also selfish and just Soaking this out <laughs> <up> tonight. <laughs> yeah. Come but back and see us. So yeah. 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 yeah thank, really, you. thank you all. Really,
3: yeah. um, really wonderful just hearing all of your stories and your insights and your worldviews. Uh, really beautiful stuff. Really appreciate you spending the time with us tonight.
0: Yeah. No, yeah. Thank you all for having me here. And uh, yeah, I'm truly honored to be here. And I think it's really cool all the work that you guys are doing with the podcast and, uh, yeah everything that the podcast is connected to yeah with the beware how group that you have going <laughs>
4: yeah.
1: thanks Itaram. it's uh it's definitely a soulful it's a soulful project for sure and uh we get to meet people like you so we're gonna yeah, we're gonna it keep it going yeah it. exactly so amazing. <laughs> absolutely see you guys bye, so
3: bye y'all <laughs> thank you